0: Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.
1: Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Katherine Brobeck,
2: And I'm Kemper Donovan.
1: And this week, we are talking about The Disappearance of Mr. Davenheim, which was first published in... Do you have a guess? I'm going to guess the sketch. Oh my gosh, you are so <laughs> genius. Lucky I don't know guess. how you got that one. <laughs> it was, of course, published in the sketch on March 28, 1923, thus making it the oldest of the short stories in Poirot Investigates.
2: Our victim is, no surprise here, Mr. Davenheim himself, the proprietor of a British banking establishment, Davenheim and Salmon. And he has gone missing from his country estate, the Cedars, in the middle of a Saturday afternoon. And for the duration of the story until the rather dramatic and shocking denouement, he (laughs) remains missing and possibly dead or kidnapped.
1: There are only a few suspects here. We can talk briefly about Mrs. Davenheim, his wife, Natch, who (laughs) is... Not exactly a suspect, but Poirot does make a very big deal about both her exquisite jewel collection and also um, he's very, very nosy about her bedroom arrangement with her husband. He just really, really wants to know whether or not she and her husband share a bedroom.
2: The next suspect is Mr. Lowen. And he's an investor who had come, if not to blows, then to a certain degree of contention with Mr. Davenheim in the past. He made an appointment to see Davenheim at exactly the same time that the man went missing.
1: Exactly, And basically. he was all...
2: Exactly, yeah. He was also later supposedly, allegedly seen throwing Mr. Davenheim's ring, a signet ring, into a ditch by a small-time crook who had been loitering on the road where this allegedly, supposedly happened.
1: And said small-time crook, who I suppose is our other suspect here is Billy Kellett, and he's well-known by authorities for his pickpocketing, for his petty cons, and mostly for his just profound degree of drunkenness. And he's been in and out of jail, and he's a witness to Lowen's disposal of this quote-unquote evidence. But as of the time of the story, he's also super hungover and imprisoned.
2: Let's take a look at the world as it appears to be before we solve this puzzle. In a nutshell, it seems like Mr. Lowen did it. Before Mr. Lowen arrived, Mr. Davenheim said that he had to run to the post, and that was the last time that anyone at his home saw him. He never returned home. And Mr. Lowen arrived in the meantime and waited patiently in the study before departing after waiting for an hour. And after Mr. Lowen had departed and people realized that Mr. Davenheim was missing, it was determined that the estate had been robbed. And this is also, you know, after the fact we get this information about Mr. Lowen being seen tossing that missing or dead man's ring into a ditch. And that, again, was seen by the drunkard slash lout Billy
1: Kellett. We find out that Scotland Yard has put its best and brightest on the case in the form of an unseen gentleman named Miller, a quote-unquote smart chap by Japp's account. And does Jeff ever enjoy recounting this tricky disappearance? He's just over for a cuppa with Poirot and Hastings, (laughs) as one does, right? And Hastings is sitting there, and he happens to say that he believes it is purely impossible for anyone to actually disappear. And that there are only three excuses for a disappearance, all of which can be cleared up. So amnesia, in which case someone will inevitably recognize you murder, in which case inevitably a body will be discovered, or faking your own disappearance, in which case either someone will recognize you or you will be caught at the border should you, say, try to leave the country.
2: And i just like to take a moment, just pause for a second here, because that, <laughs> <laughs> that little excerpt from this story was actually highlighted in Jared Cade's book, which we talked about at great length in our Gone Girl, The Real Life Disappearance of Agatha Christie episode, because it's just really interesting to me that five years before Agatha Christie herself disappeared, she was able to break down the ways in which someone could disappear with such ease and elegance. Honestly, I just feel like this passage lends credence to the theory that she planned the disappearance herself because girlfriend knew her options here.
1: Well, and also she knew apparently that none of them were good options.
2: (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, managed to give a good go at all three of them. Oh, (laughs) for sure. The amnesia is what she eventually said that she had. Everyone thought she was murdered. She she made it look like Murder made it look like murder, and probably, in fact, faked it herself, faked her own disappearance. (laughs) And there's also, at least in the ITV, in the adaptation, which we'll talk more about in a second, but I I think it it might happen in the story as well, they drag the lake as well, which just reminded me of Mm -hmm. when Agatha Christie disappeared. They also had to drag a lake and look for her body. It's just so... Funny to me that this was written five years before and not after all of that right. crazy. It's happened actually, in it's her actually life.
1: Miller in the story. It's Miller's uh, sort of great idea that he's already on top of things that they're going to have the lake dragged.
2: Yeah, yeah. So Poirot decides to accept a bet with Jap for a wager of five pounds and access to pertinent information from Jap and Scotland Yard. Poirot will solve the disappearance without ever leaving his armchair. That is, he will use his little gray cells and get to the bottom of things. And the line in the book, which I thought was really interesting, which Poirot says is, one must seek the truth within, not without, which is just such an interesting line coming from a because it kind of is the opposite of the process of deduction. It's almost like induction. But it's just Poirot, yet again, being a bit egotistical and saying you have to well, have a brilliant mind, such as mine, to be able to find your way through.
1: This is obviously one of the early short stories, but this is something that will be brought back. I mean, we've already, we've already covered one in which Poirot is bedridden and manages mm-hmm. to solve the case. So, I mean, this is like a device that the ability to use one's little gray cells without actually having to be at the scene of the crime is is something that we will return to again and again here with Mr. Poirot. Yeah.
2: I think it's just interesting because what he's basically saying is there are other people that can see and hear and synthesize facts and relay those facts just as well as I can, but the key component here is the intellectual capacity to make sense I mean, of those unf- facts.
1: Un- unfortunately, I would suggest that perhaps this same impulse gave rise to every Reddit thread about, uh, you know, cereal. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, so many armchair detectives out there just sitting on the internet thinking that they too can solve whole cases.
2: Right. You can totally take this kind of thinking way too far. I feel like Poirot is a bridge between Sherlock Holmes and Nero Wolfe. I mean, Nero right. Wolfe is the ultimate armchair detective because he really never leaves and, and does anything on his own. Whereas Sherlock Holmes was on the ground and all about sensory data. And Poirot kind of wavers in between, and it really depends on the story, too. I mean, at times, he does go, and he's quite active. And I don't know if we can even really chart sort of course of, like, maybe he was more active and then became less active. I think it just kind of depends on what story Christie is telling. For sure. But this is definitely an an aspect of him. Anyway, let's talk about the world as it actually is.
1: As Poirot proclaims in the story, the sort of muddiness of this disappearance is actually helpful because it suggests... Basically that there's a there or there. In other words, if things are too clear in a case, that probably means that something is being obfuscated because real life is essentially not neat. It is not clear. And so because this is a muddy case, that means that Poirot can look at the facts as presented to him and sort of read between the lines, as it were. So the first clue is pretty immediate, and that's the theft itself. In other words, the contents of the safe. We know that the safe held this massive collection of exquisite and valuable jewels that Mr. Davenheim has become just passionate about buying for his wife in the last few years. And the other contents of the safe were bearer bonds and notes, all of which were taken. And so the deduction that we can very quickly make here, if we're being astute, is that all of these things could have been moved out of the safe, A, at an earlier time, and all of them are things that are essentially easily transferable. And the fact that the safe only held things that were easy to move, as it were, is a little bit suspicious in and of itself.
2: Clue number two (laughs) has to do with, it's a a little bit of a costuming clue. You know, Chrissy (laughs) likes her disguises and costumes. It has to do with men who have beards and or other easily identifiable facial hair. We know that Mr. Davenheim preferred to wear his hair long and that he had bushy eyebrows and a bushy beard. The deduction here is that when when, when we're getting such an emphasis in a story on facial hair, it's going (laughs) to be significant in some way because Glue can do wonders. There are many ways to paste false facial hair to one's face and also to use wigs, and that sort of costuming is a favorite in Christie short stories and, for that matter, in Christie novels as well. So, we should be suspicious of all of this man hair. <laughs>
1: Yeah. um, More on that later. (laughs) Right. I mean, I, I think that she probably would have just been completely thrown for a loop by, you know, bearded Brooklyn of the aughts.
2: Oh, my God. Yeah, well, it's funny, and we'll we'll get to it a long time from now, but I have a distinct recollection of some of the Christies set in the 60s that rail against the notion of men having long hair and how you can't even tell who's a man and who's a woman from behind anymore these days and these dirty hippies with their long hair. So, yeah, I, I think she would be as displeased with the hipsters of the aughts as she was with the hippies of the 60s. <laughs>
1: Under our third clue. Mr. Davenheim was on a lengthy vacay slash business trip, let's say to exotic lands, away from, mm-hmm. from England. And for quite some time, in fact. And I would say this is never, ever a good sign. I suppose Captain Hastings does go off to Argentina, and that's not suspicious. But generally, if someone has just left England for a really long time and their name is not, like, Ann Bettingfeld. <laughs> we should be wary of where exactly they went and why.
2: Right, the casual mention of a vacation, especially in a short story like this, is something that should be noted by an acute reader. So, fourth clue. Mr. Davenheim's clothes are found washed, in, washed up in that lake that was dredged, and there is a servant of the estate who swears they saw him headed prior to the disappearance in the direction of the lake of his own volition. So the deduction here, of course, say it with us, never (laughs) underestimate the help. (laughs) And also, don't underestimate a costume change or a lake dredging which turns up no body. So in all likelihood, there's no body to be found, and there was a sort of costume change going on here, and we should start being suspicious of Mr. Davenheim himself, perhaps, at this point, because it seems that there just may be more going on here than a murder and perhaps he had something to do with his own disappearance
1: right and then finally there is faro's very weird little obsession which is sort of the tipping point of the story for him but he asks poor inspector Japp whether or not the davenheims had been sharing a bedroom and inspector Japp has a really great line about what the war must have done to poor Monsieur Poirot. But he gets back to Poirot, and he says that because you asked, it turns out that they used to share a bedroom. But after Mr. Davenheim's return from his long overseas trip, they actually took to separate bedrooms. So the deduction here is, A, whenever Poirot fixates on a point, probably the reader should fixate on that point. And two, if somebody comes back from a long trip overseas and all of a sudden drastically changes a long-standing behavior, there's probably a reason why. So, something was either going on currently that one of the Davenheims was attempting to keep from the other or something happened overseas.
2: So, how does this all come together and make sense? Basically, after learning that the Davenheim slept in separate bedrooms, Poirot warns Hastings to remove all of his money, should he have any therein, from Davenheim and Salmon ASAP, and he wires a note to Jap saying the very same. And then the next morning, Jap comes to Poirot's flat, frantically waving this newspaper, the headline of which announces the financial ruin of the Davenheim Bank. And once again, Papa Poirot has astonished <laughs> them all, Poor Jap and poor Hastings. They just cannot believe that Poirot could have guessed that correctly, and they are at a loss to know how he did it.
1: Especially without ever having left his armchair. You see, Monsieur Devenheim, he never went abroad. Mr. Davenheim was involved in an intricate and very long con. Basically knowing that his bank was, let's call it the, I don't know, Bear Stearns of 1923, (laughs) um, (laughs) Davenheim slowly and carefully started converting money from the bank into untraceable and easily transferable sums. He bought jewels, but he swapped them for paste gems for his wife while he then sold or at least stored the actual jewels. And he bought notes and bonds that would not be tied to the money in his own bank.
2: By the way, let's give Lehman Brothers a shout-out, too. They could also be sort of like the Lehman Brothers of 1923.
1: Everybody do credit.
2: (laughs) Or debit, as the case may be. Oh. All right. While he was supposed to be abroad, Mr. Davenheim, Trixie Mr. Davenheim, was creating a drunken criminal character None other than Billy Kellett, complete with a shaved head and eyebrows and face, clean-shaven face. And he became, over the course of those months that he, he was supposedly abroad, he became this well-known character to authorities and ne'er-do-wells alike. Hence the long con aspect of this situation. I mean, he
1: committed. He spent a lot of time in jail, which is, I suppose, more than can be said about the principles behind the uh, 2008 crash. <laughs>
2: Yeah, he did like a legit Martha Stewart-ish jaunt. Well, I mean, She did think, her time, too.
1: I think he probably did most of his time in the drunk tag, right?
2: Well, no, wasn't he in for like petty thievery yeah, or he whatever? Was. Didn't he, he was. get himself? Yeah, yeah. So because he had shaved himself and and become this near do well character, once he returned, quote-unquote, returned home, he was, of course, forced to wear a false beard and some false hair which is why he couldn't sleep with his wife because obviously she would figure out that he was wearing a paste beard and be a bit freaked out by that understandably
1: maybe might, be, shed- might he- be shedding a little bit on the pillows
2: Yeah, yeah, might be shedding a little bit on the duvet. So when he disappeared, he became Kellett once again, since he had kept up with his shaving. And by inviting Mr. Lowen to his house the exact same time that he disappeared, he set him up to take the fall for the theft of all those valuables from his safe, and also for his own disappearance.
1: Right, and so where did he disappear himself He disappeared himself all the way back to jail Um, (laughs) because, uh, you know, where you would not look for a missing man who is an upright citizen. You'd probably not look for him in the drunk tank of a known felon and petty thief,
2: which is actually pretty ingenious.
1: Yeah, it is, because then he knew that he would get out, you know, in a short order from his like minor crime as Billy Kellett. And he would then be able to rush off into the sunset with all of his loot that he'd taken from his failing bank.
2: Right. And three months later, assuming he had a couple months stint in jail when he got out, the furor over his disappearance would have died down a bit. It would just be easier for him to evade. Detection at that point. And probably leave Um, the country. Yeah, and leave the country. And in the end, Mrs. Davenheim is brought in to identify her now disgraced husband as the man posing as Billy Kellett in the jail, and poor Jap is forced to send Poirot the five pounds, which Poirot feels awful about, and here's the bad Poirot French Ah (laughs) Sacre. But what shall I do with it? I have much remorse. So poor Jap. Ah, an idea. We will have a little dinner, we three. That consoles me. It was really too easy. I am ashamed. I, who would not rob a child? Mille mon ami. What have you, that you laugh so heartily. That's the end of the story. Another, yeah. another rather abrupt ending.
1: Well, I mean, at least it's, a, it's, at least it's a pleasant ending. Although it's probably not a pleasant ending yes. for Mrs. Davenheim, because I assume that he was just going to dump her, right?
2: That's the thing. It's never really dealt with, and it's not even really dealt with in the adaptation, which we can just shift to now. It's a bit more dramatic. As usual, the adaptation just brings up all the action so that instead of having Jep telling us everything, we just see it happening. And they also make the smart change of having Hastings be the stand-in for the clue and data gatherer rather than Japs so that Hastings can bumble around and annoy Mrs. Davenheim and various other people and wear really cool driving jackets of leather and tweed varieties that I quite enjoyed looking at. And
1: he gets to ogle all the race cars.
2: Yes, yes, ogle all the race cars. Sometimes these episodes include an extra sort of element, like we had Missy, Lemons, occult fandom in one of these episodes, Egyptian but too. this one has three elements to spice it up: one being magic tricks, the second being a parrot, I know, an actual parrot, and the third, race cars. So <laughs> there's a there's a lot of extra stuff going on in this episode, but I quite enjoyed it.
1: I liked it too, but it's really funny that they had to spice it up when it's actually a pretty good short story.
2: I think they realized that because it was Poirot being housebound, they had to have fun with that. So two of those three things involve Poirot sitting around. He, even though I I watched the episode and I even replayed this, I'm not clear who sent him the parrot, how he got the parrot. It just kind of shows up. So
1: I think it was explained, but I didn't really follow.
2: Yeah, I didn't follow either. But the man who delivers the parrot, it's one of the better lines, I think, certainly in the episode, if not the whole (laughs) series. (laughs)
1: So I've got a parrot with Mr. Poirot. Yeah, no, 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 Poirot. It is pronounced Poirot. Oh, bigger pardon, Governor. I've got a Poirot with Mr. Poirot. <laughs> <laughs> which,
2: which I appreciated, and also one of the other best lines in the episode. After Poirot starts interacting a lot with the parrot, he is talking to Hastings, and Hastings is looking at the parrot. Uh, please.
0: Do not fraternize with that creature. I am still training him. It's only a parrot. I was talking to the parrot.
2: That is a sick burn, Hercule. <laughs> that is a sick burn.
1: <laughs> um, but the, the magic, the magic tricks are great.
2: And, you know, David Suchet did all of those himself. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. David Suchet is such a talented and clearly dynamic sort of a guy. He kind of reminds me, he's like Lin-Manuel Miranda. He just seems like such a ebullient a presence whenever you I've seen him off screen that I feel like they had to give him stuff to do. Because he would just get bored. So They're like, "Why don't you learn these magic tricks? That'll be fun." And then he's really good at them. They're so good. I
1: suppose so. And also, it must be like—I mean, he was like packed in in like foam in every single episode. I suppose you have to have something to while away the hours. <laughs>
2: right. Hastings has some race cars to look at because they make Mister Lowen a race car owner slash driver. So he he goes to the racetrack and
1: oh, and the house. The house is so um obviously a house that we've seen before and a house that uh, at least the two of us and any listeners who are following along with us have seen relatively recently.
2: Absolutely. It was it was the same house that was used in the theft of of the royal ruby, a.k.a. the adventure of the Christmas pudding, our Christmas themed episode. And not
1: only that, it's a house that we actually talked about at some length in our episode about that episode. I think the other thing, Kemper, that we wanted to mention in this was a source of annoyance to the two of us.
2: Yes, and and consternation, great consternation.
1: Indeed, Continue. and, and um, I would also say um, a little bit of sheer surprise. Absolutely. And that is the fact that seasons one through six of our beloved Agatha Christie's Poirot.
2: Or series one through six for the British folks among us.
1: Yes. They have gone missing from all streaming sites.
2: It's the case of the missing TV show.
1: I know. <laughs> they've, gone, they've gone missing from Amazon, from Netflix, from iTunes, from Acorn. Are there, are there other ones that I'm missing?
2: No, I think those are the, I mean, those, those are my go to's. I've i I've never had anything missing from all four of those platforms. And there is a message on Acorn about seasons one through six going away as of March thirteenth, which leads me to believe there's some sort of a licensing glitch or maybe not a glitch, just a, a licensing failure for those six seasons. If anyone has any Info to impart about that. We would be very curious to hear it. And if you want to contact us, and actually, this seems like a seamless segue into our wrap up. (laughs) We will be discussing yet another Poirot short story next week The Adventure of the Italian Nobleman. That is the next one in the Poirot Investigates collection. And the week after that, as we mentioned before, we will be doing the murder at the Vicarage, our very first Miss Marple. In the meantime, you can contact us via Facebook at facebook.com slash allaboutagatha or on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can also email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at allaboutagatha. We will see you next week. Bye.
1: See you next week.